Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for coming out to, to join us on a, on a cold November morning. Um, we're here this morning to uh, talk about India-Israel-U.S. trilateral relations. This, uh, this was a product of, um, well, it was a, the concept for doing this trilateral came to me in a, in a fairly unique way. My boss came into my office one day and said, we should do an India-Israel-U.S. trilateral. <laughs> and, um, you know, credit to, to Jim Carafano for the foresight to do this because this is our second year running and we found it to be an incredibly productive exercise. Uh, last year, uh, Ambassador Gold hosted us for the inaugural edition of, of this trilateral conference in Jerusalem. And uh, we brought together our partner from Israel, Vivekananda International Foundation, uh, which we also have been doing, uh, running our Quad Plus dialogue uh, with them for many years now. So we had a history of institutional partnerships with VIF, Dr. Gupta at the head now. And um, we found these conversations to be uh, extremely constructive. And so this year we hosted here at Heritage, uh, second round, for a day-long set of private discussions yesterday. And this morning we thought we would uh, host a public panel so we could bring out into the, the uh, open space some of the discussions we've been having in private. And we could review some common challenges, some common opportunities among the three countries. And to do so, we have three very distinguished guests for you today. To my immediate left, Ambassador Dory Gold is the president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, which has led since 2000. Uh, from June 2016, 2015 to October 2016, he served as Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel. Before that, he served as an external advisor on international issues to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Ambassador Gold has also served as a permanent representative of Israel to the United Nations and as an envoy to the Palestinian Authority, Egypt, Jordan, and the Gulf States. Dr. Arvind Gupta is a director of Vivekananda International Foundation, or VIF, one of India's premier think tanks. Prior to that, he served as Deputy National Security Advisor and Secretary of the National Security Council Secretariat from 2014 to 2017. He's also held the role of Joint Secretary in the Ministry of External Affairs from 1999 to 2007. He also served as the Director General of IDSA, which those of you who are familiar with India is their sort of premier defense think tank affiliated with the Ministry of Defense. He carries a written four books um, and co-edited several more. His latest book, How India Manages Its National Security, was published by Penguin Random House in 2018. 
And to my far left uh, is Heritage Fellow David Shedd, uh, who's also an adjunct professor at Patrick Henry College, served in the U.S. government for nearly 33 years. In August 2014, he was named acting director of the Defense Intelligence Agency after serving four years as the deputy director. As acting director, he led the Defense Intelligence Enterprise workforce comprised of more than 16,500 military and civilian employees worldwide. Previously, he served as DNI's Deputy Director for Policy Plans and Requirements and on the National Security Council as a Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Intelligence Programs and Reform. As I said, a very uh, distinguished group of experts to talk today about uh, India-Israel-U.S. trilateral cooperation, but also uh, to talk about how their own security environments are changing. And I thought we might open up the discussion, uh, turning to each of the guests, just to talk a bit about how they see the world, how their country's um, security challenges are shaping up, uh, particularly over the last year, but in a contemporary setting. And then we could move to uh, sort of drilling down a little bit deeper on opportunities for collaboration among the three before we open it up to Q&A. And I would like to leave certainly some time to get the audience involved. So with that, um, I turn the floor over to Ambassador Gold. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here at Heritage. I wrote one of my books. I had a Heritage press conference. So uh, I'm familiar with the building and some of the rooms. <laughs> uh, and um, it's a place where we feel that um, our voice will be heard. Um, I think what I'd like to do is just give you a sense of how the strategic environment of Israel has changed. Um, you know, it was nearly 30 years ago that we had the Madrid Peace Conference, which launched what people called the Arab-Israeli peace process. And that was in uh, October of 1991. And um, we're in a different situation now. You don't have to turn on the television. You see that the Gaza Strip has become a launching pad for rocket attacks against the state of Israel. The organizations involved, or the premier organization involved, is not just Hamas. It's Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which from our point of view is an extension of the uh, Iranian security establishment. Now. Before I get into all of that, I just want to make, make it clear that when we asked ourselves 30 years ago, why was it that all of a sudden we were on the verge of some peace discussions with our neighbors, which were not possible in the 1980s and the 1970s? And the answers were basically three critical factors. One, the Soviet Union had been defeated by the United States in the Cold War and subsequently even collapsed. And therefore, we were in a new global situation, which uh, allowed, under the uh, umbrella of American paramountcy, the states in the region to feel that they had to sit together and try and work something out. Very simple. That was the first condition. The second uh, important condition is that after we made peace with Egypt in 1979, 
the, uh, the last major Arab power that spoke about destroying the state of Israel was Iraq. But Iraq had been defeated by a coalition of countries after it invaded Kuwait. And that clearly, the fact that Iraq had been crushed and Saddam defeated, created a regional circumstance that was new. And third, if we looked around the Middle East for somebody who wanted to pick up Iraq's crown as regional leader with military options against the state of Israel, that country was Iran. But Iran had just finished an eight-year war with Iraq. And it was in no position to project military power in the direction of the Mediterranean and towards Israel. So that created a unique set of circumstances that allowed us to uh, protect our security. Um, what is happening right now? First of all, what is happening right now is that President Putin of Russia is seeking to restore the status of Russia as a global superpower. He's not doing too badly, by the way. And you know, that creates certain, um, certain dilemmas and challenges for the state of Israel. I used the term during our discussions yesterday, frenemy. Frenemy is a little bit of a friend, a little bit more problematic. I first read the term in The Economist. And, you know, in Syria, we have a massive Russian military presence. We have the Iranians seeking to create a presence in Syria and calling Syria the 35th state lip of Iran. But obviously, with Russia there in, uh, with a large military presence, that affects our calculus of what we can do and what we can't do. And one of the great achievements of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been the balancing act of you know, going to Sochi and sitting with President Putin and working out rules of engagement. But obviously, if you develop a new structure of relations for the state of Israel, you have to adjust to this new reality. Let me just give you a couple of features. At the end of that Gulf War, the um, balance of power between Israel and uh, its most hostile neighbors was more, more or less stabilized. The terror organizations were now becoming terror armies, and that was new. Um, but when we saw, particularly the Iranians, trying to transfer to Hezbollah new weaponry that could alter the balance of power, um, just an example, there's a cruise missile called the Yachont, Russian-produced, has a reach of about 200, 200 kilometers out to sea. It's an anti-ship missile. But when you are investing in new gas fields in the Mediterranean, and your adversary is about to take possession of anti-ship cruise missiles with that kind of strategic reach that are supersonic, by the way, that changes things. 
So obviously when we have information that missiles like the Yachont are about to be transferred to Hezbollah, Israel doesn't sit on its hands. There are other missiles that could change the uh, air balance, the SA-22. Again, when we see that that's about to occur, we have to respond. We never wanted to get involved in the Syrian civil war. Our only involvement was having a field hospital on the Golan Heights to take care of Sunnis that had been uh, wounded. Well, if we saw weapons like that. And finally, of course, the massive rocket force which Hezbollah has, which a former American Secretary of Defense says larger than the forces larger than the rocket forces of many Western countries. When we saw that Hezbollah was seeking to introduce accuracy to weapons that are known to be relatively inaccurate, that also changes the balance of power, should it occur. So what you have is Israel with a situation which looks like a frozen balance, with the other side trying to upset that balance, trying to uh, improve its position in ways that would uh, damage Israel. Now, one last feature of what is going on in our region, and it's also beyond Israel, something very clever that Iran has been doing. It has been setting up militias, militias of Shiites, and stationing them, among other places, in Syria. They also exist in Iraq. And um, these Shiite militias allow Iran to become militarily active without killing, in those, in those battles, Iranians. So you have a militia set up of Afghans who've been brought into Syria. You have a militia including Pakistanis. And of course, Iraqis who come into Syria to fight in the interests of, of uh, Iran. Recently, another think tank, the IISS in London, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, put out a very long and detailed report showing what these new proxy forces were doing. And one of the things that struck me in their report is they said they wrote that Iran had a military advantage over the U.S. and its allies in the Middle East because of these Shia militias. So something is changing. And it's something Israel has to monitor and Israel has to respond to. Uh, what this has to do with India's interests is something which we have to much further discuss. But it was very important for us to stress the problems, the challenges that uh, Israel faces. And especially if the United States is rethinking its role in the Middle East. It has to be aware that there are new challenges out there which are not just affecting Israel, 
They're affecting the Gulf Arabs, Saudi Arabia, and uh, other allies of the United States, which makes me feel that we have to have a region-wide discussion about how we protect stability in the future. And as I said in our discussions, we have to remember that when the British Empire went to war against the Ottoman Empire, most, some of the most important forces that fought with the British was the British Indian Army. So we haven't forgotten that. We even have photographs of the British Indian Army marching on Jerusalem. And um, I think that will perhaps give us a context, a way of thinking about creating a new security structure for the Middle East. I'll stop here and let my colleagues speak. Dr. Kipto. Thank you, Mr. Smith, for giving us this opportunity to be here today and be part of this panel discussion and also interact uh, with the uh, audience here, a very intelligent audience. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Ambassador Dorigold, uh, who had hosted us uh, last year in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, now we are meeting here for this trilateral. Uh, and of course, uh, the heritage has been always been a pillar of support for us in terms of our not only interaction, but also outreach uh, in the US. And we greatly value our cooperation which is not just uh, Quad and these trilateral, but there's also a lot of personal contacts that have developed, and we are in touch with uh, each other on a number of uh, important issues, particularly those uh, concerning the Indo-US relationship. And uh, I want to thank Mr. Shed also for uh, being here and greatly look forward to uh, listening to him. Uh, in the 10 minutes or so that I have, I want to focus on the points that uh, uh, Jeff mentioned. Uh, the security environment as uh, we look at it, and also make a few remarks about uh, the Indo-US uh, relationship in the context of this changing uh, security uh, environment. Firstly, uh, sitting in India, right in the center of uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, also south of Himalayas, and also this big gap that we have, which has been there for millennia the, on the uh, western side from which a lot of invaders have come and has always been a very important uh, uh, security uh, challenge that we have faced from the west. And today, again, nothing has changed. We have uh, Pakistan, we have uh, uh, Afghanistan situation, we have this uh, terrorism, cross-border terrorism, we have an unsettled boundary with uh, China, which is rising, which is becoming now a superpower. And of course, we have this whole area of uh, Indo-Pacific, where India has uh, a deep strategic interest, and which, of course, we, many of these uh, sh we share with the United States and uh, other countries. <coughs> uh, we live in a very turbulent uh, neighborhood. And most of the countries around us, they are in different stages of development. They have their own uh, issues and problems, instabilities. But at the same time, uh, in South Asia, they're also uh, making uh, progress. 
Now, if you look at it, I think one big change that has come in Indian thinking is that India is no longer just confined to South Asia corner. We are, of course, a South Asian uh, country, but we are much, much uh, beyond, our interest lies much beyond uh, South Asia. In fact, our strategic uh, uh, perimeter, which, I, by the way, the British had quite uh, understood very well, it goes right from uh, the Pacific to the shores of Africa. And that is why the re resonance uh, with the concept of uh, Indo-Pacific, and which brings in not just the uh, maritime aspects of uh, the cooperation, which is, of course, very important, but whole gamut of uh, other issues, uh, things like connectivity, for instance, which becomes very important. And it also links up with our continental uh, policies, because many of these countries are also uh, big continental powers. So in the last few years, if you see uh, in India, I think if I have to mention four or five uh, major uh, security concerns uh, that we have, uh, these are, as I said, one is uh, the cross-border terrorism, uh, which is a very big issue for us and remains so, but also international terrorism as a whole, and our Prime Minister has been talking about uh, a convention on uh, international terrorism, uh, and we have been a very active uh, players in uh, uh, the fight against international terrorism, but I would like to bring it down particularly to cross-border terrorism, which is a very uh, immediate uh, uh, threat for us, and it continues to be so. And now with this radicalization, et cetera, I think it has become a very important uh, issue. The second uh, aspect is our unsettled uh, boundary uh, with the 4,000 kilometers long uh, boundary with uh, uh, China. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, there have not been any major incidents uh, since uh, 2017 Doklam. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, uh, effort to manage the boundary and... Uh, there have not been any uh, uh, military operations uh, since 2017. But nevertheless, uh, the boundary is unsettled, and that creates uh, its own uh, challenges. I think the third important issue is the China's uh, rise itself, and which has uh, many uh, dimensions. One of the dimensions of China's rise is the, uh, where the Belt and Road Initiative, of which China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is one. They're also building a corridor in uh, Myanmar, Bangladesh, uh, etc. And of course, their growing uh, presence uh, in the countries which are surrounding us in the South Asia, so, uh, and particularly the activities uh, on port and building port infrastructure. Uh, if you look at the Indo-Pacific, the, uh, the maritime uh, silk uh, road, that I think which involves a lot of uh, construction of ports and uh, related infrastructure by the Chinese companies in areas which are very strategically located. So the strategic dimension of the Belt and Road Initiative and the strategic dimension of uh, the Chinese activity in the Indian Ocean, and they were not there just about 20, 30 years ago. They were not there, and now they are a very big presence. And the modernization of their armed forces, and we saw that parade which happened recently. So I think there are certain uh, uh, consequences with which we have to uh, uh, deal with. Now, these are the main issues that we have uh, on, uh, on the security front. But if you look at the larger plane, there is, of course, we are seeing that uh, the global environment itself is changing very rapidly. Uh, there is uh, a lot of turbulence in the world, and some of these things uh, was mentioned by Ambassador Gold 
uh, just a few minutes ago. The Middle East is very important for us. We have about uh, uh, eight to nine million of Indians who are working in the Gulf area. We have energy dependence on the Middle East. We also have uh, 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 been focusing on the uh, how to improve our relationship uh, with the key countries in the Middle East. And I think one of the uh, strong uh, points, or uh, let me say the uh, a, uh, achievements of uh, Modi, uh, Modi's policies has been improvement of relations with uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which are two very important uh, countries. Uh, and even if you look at and uh, go back to the 90s, and this is how it started, and that was our improvement of ties with Israel. And today we are in a situation, we have very close uh, uh, ties with uh, Israel, whether it is defense, whether it's economic, technology, uh, even very important issues like agriculture, water. These are Israel and India are working together. And I think this is something that we discussed uh, in, uh, yesterday also, and we will hope that we'll discuss in future also. In fact, today Israel has become a very important uh, uh, contributor to India's uh, food security in the way that they have about 29 centers of excellence uh, in the different Indian states, uh, which are advising the Indian farmers on how to use uh, water better and how to increase the productivity of the soil and so on. And I think uh, there is, uh, apart from the strategic relationship, this relationship is uh, tremendously important and it's uh, growing. So uh, I think, and our rethinking of Middle East really began with the, uh, in the 90s when we started uh, building our relationship with Israel. And I think there is uh, a very close relationship now in the defense cooperation also in technological, uh, in technology field as well. And now we are talking in terms of a trilateral so I think uh, like-minded countries come together and look at these challenges. So we have benefited from this uh, uh, heritage uh, uh, trilateral uh, yesterday by developing and in, uh, refining our understanding of the situation in the Middle East. So this is one part. But at the same time, if you look at uh, on, uh, on our East, we have had uh, this concept of Indo-Pacific, as I mentioned, the Act East policy of uh, the uh, Modi government, it has completely transformed our relationship in the, uh, uh, in the East. So we now have uh, uh, the concept of Indo-Pacific on which our Prime Minister deliberated at length in Shangri-La in 2018. We have a very strong cooperation now developing uh, amongst the quadrilateral countries, Quad, uh, which I think uh, Heritage and VIF and others can take some uh, credit for uh, developing this idea. Uh, and now we have uh, come to a stage where uh, the first uh, Quad meeting at the level of foreign ministers happened just a few uh, months ago, and we are going to develop that uh, further. And several new ideas have uh, come. I think Quad itself is now developing in the direction of not just only being a security uh, you know, uh, discussion group, but also looking at things like connectivity, et cetera, which is actually a very important part of uh, overall uh, cooperation and also in some way uh, in a response to what uh, China is uh, doing. So Quad is uh, uh, yet another example. Apart from that, I think uh, India has been uh, uh, developing, deepening its relationship uh, with ASEAN, 10 very important ASEAN countries who are so critical. They are surrounding the South China Sea, whereas, as you know, China has... Uh, 
more or less occupied those islands and now deepened its uh, uh, presence. So I think dealing and uh, engaging with the ASEAN is also very important. And whether it is uh, the East Asia Summit or whether it is ADMM Plus, uh, which is the defense mechanism for, for cooperation with ASEAN, India is playing a very important role. Our relationship with Japan, our relationship with Japan uh, has also deepened. And this is, I think, one of those somewhat unstated uh, uh, developments. The significance of India-Japan relations goes far beyond simply the bilateral. And uh, today, the Japanese investments in India are growing. India and Japan are also, defense cooperation also has grown. And of course, in the uh, format of uh, US, Japan, and India uh, trilateral, which is again, uh, now, the, uh, the first summit meeting was held uh, on these uh, sidelines of G20 in Buenos Aires in 2018, where the leaders of the three countries met, and uh, this process is also uh, developing. And this, Australia is also now coming in, as I said, quad, uh, in the format of quad in a big way. India U.S. have uh, a, a series of uh, uh, ch uh, channels of communication whether it is defense, economic, technology, energy, I think all this is uh, happening very well. So in this context, I would just like to mention two or three points about the Indo-US uh, relationship. Uh, it is actually going from strength to strength. It is re really a remarkable achievement that when the world is changing so fast and in, uh, it's full of uncertainties. And in this period of uncertainty, the Indo-US relationship has grown deeper and has become a global strategic partnership and in which all persuasions of the U.S. administrations have contributed. So there is a bipartisan consensus which continues to uh, hold. And I think if you look at the long term, Indo-U.S. relationship is now on very solid uh, foundation. And uh, there are many triggers uh, which are already opening up for taking it to uh, newer heights. Defense, as I said, is one of them. But I would also like to mention um, energy. Uh, India is already beginning to buy a lot of uh, uh, U.S. gas, shale gas, and uh, oil, etc. And already we are having, I think, two, three billion dollars, four billion dollars, I think, worth of imports. Uh, we have already had about eighteen billion dollars uh, worth of uh, uh, imports of U.S. defense equipment. And this energy partnership and some other triggers today, the Indo-U.S. trade is something like about one hundred forty to one hundred fifty billion dollars, which includes services as well as uh, merchandise. And it is slated to grow to about $225, $230 billion by 2025. So it's a very substantial relationship which is growing. And then we saw uh, in the very recent uh, past when Prime Minister Modi was here and his interaction uh, with the Indian diaspora, diaspora has become a very strong uh, driver of Indo-US uh, relationship. And uh, again, many new opportunities are opening up. But I think if you look at uh, the future, because the security environment is dynamic, it is changing, but there are a lot of convergences which have uh, developed between India and US. And I have no doubt that uh, this relationship will go uh, further. Of course, there are bureaucracies uh, to deal with, there are procedures to deal with, there are institutional issues, etc. So there could always be some twists and turns. But as think tanks, we are looking at long term, and I think long term it uh, seems to be uh, a very good potential uh, on in Indo-US uh, uh, relationship. And here, India, US, and Israel, because there are many areas of commonality that we have. Technology, for instance, is one. We could cooperate in, for instance, cyber 
uh, areas. We could also, because the Middle East is important for the three of us, so I think it, uh, developing common perceptions is uh, also uh, very important. And uh, Mr. Dorigold mentioned about uh, the a, a architecture, a security architecture for the Middle East. See, so far we have really kept away from, you know, uh, really talking about uh, the security in the Middle East, etc. We were content by having some bilateral relationships and making sure that our people were safe and so on and so forth. But actually, India has very big stakes uh, in the stability in the Middle East. And I think the three countries can talk together. So I think I'll stop here, and then we can take some Thank questions you. on the day. Thank you. David. Well, Jeff, uh, thank you for uh, uh, setting up this forum, which I know is a continuation of uh, last year in Jerusalem or in Israel. And, uh, and I think uh, as a former intelligence official who never really leaves uh, the tradecraft, the idea of cooperation among countries is, is absolutely critical, and, and uh, I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted to be here today and uh, delighted to, to hear from you as well in terms of your questions that you may have. I guess the professor side of me comes out when I think of context, and to your original question, Jeff, what's the sort of a, a view of the world that, that, uh, that I have that I share really with Dr. Gupta and Ambassador Gold in terms of what they've described. Permit me to pull the lens back a bit. And um, as I've told my students as recently as this past Monday, as we were looking at emerging threats around the globe and what kind of response uh, should we have by way of the policy community as well as the intelligence and security side. And in pulling that lens back, I put it this way. <clears throat> I view context absolutely critical in terms of our understanding of global events as the events themselves. And for that, I refer to four horsemen of the apocalypse in terms of what we're looking at. Not to be confused with any biblical analogy here, but it's really these, these uh, major trends that we see that allow you to put our, our uh, domestic and international security into some form of a context. Obviously, uh, these four horsemen are not all inclusive to every element of the threat, but they, I think, maybe summarize them quite well in terms of that context as I look around the globe. The first one is uh, what has already been uh, referred to up here in different forms, which is related to international terrorism, but I call it the long war. It's a long war between the Sunni and the Shia uh, in, in, in both sides in terms of what their objectives are. Why is it a long war? Because there is no perceptible end in sight in, in this conflict. It has many, many manifestations and permutations as to how we uh, feel it, and international terrorism is certainly one of them. But there is uh, state powers behind some of it. There is non-state actors associated with it. But it is one in which I would argue that uh, from an intelligence and security standpoint, there is no end in sight. Its manifestations may be in the cross-border area of Pakistan and India. It's obviously in the neighborhood of uh, West Asia or the Middle East, uh, depending where you're physically sitting. Uh, 
uh, and we see it each and every day in its manifestations. The second one is the whole challenge to the international order. This second horseman of the apocalypse is uh, essentially what has already been referred to here as China and the East and South China Sea. It is uh, Russia in the Ukraine and in uh, Eastern Ukraine. Uh, you see the manifestations of it by particularly those two large state actors in terms of their reach. And it goes something, the narrative goes something like this. The rules that were imposed on us uh, be it from the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, and 60s, including Bretton Woods and the IMF and all of that were rules put in by the West when we were weak in the case of China. Ergo, we don't have to abide by the rules. Now, occasionally, they play by the rules because it's in their self-interest to do so, so they don't throw the entire rule book out. And so they will talk, Xi Jinping will talk about globalization, but notice it's defined globalization uh, around the, the, the Belt and Road definitions of globalization, right? And so it's, it's really redefining and challenging the rule book that we have known for certainly the last 70 years coming out of World War II. The third one, and uh, some people are surprised by this, but I hold to it that it is in itself an existential long-standing threat to which I uh, almost feel like I'm looking at a play of no exit, which is North Korea. Um, the implications of a Kim Jong-un or the Kim dynasty, if you will, are, are profound. Uh, in reaching an accommodation with, and I speak for myself here, of a regime that has no intention of giving up their nuclear weapons because it is, in fact, part of the anchor of, of the regime itself for the 20 million, 25 million people that are in North Korea is, is, is going to, has been and will remain a longstanding challenge for us with implications not only for the region uh, or in our relationship with Beijing and our relationship with Japan and obviously with Seoul and in, 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 uh, the Republic of Korea. Uh, and I could go on and on, and the implications of the transfer of weapons of mass destruction, either know-how and or uh, materiel from North Korea will, will remain a persistent problem, and of which I said, uh, you can ask me back the question, and what do we do about it? We continue to engage on it, but I don't see any fast and easy solutions to that. And the fourth one is more in the ideological world, and this is the rise of populism. And the expectations and the gap in expectations that our general populations, some of them disenfranchised for uh, some very good reasons, feeling disenfranchised, and others not so disenfranchised, yet still uh, feeling that, uh, that the social order and the government structures have not responded to their needs. And you see the breakaway threats in terms of, uh, uh, you know, in a Spain, or you see where I lived for 10 years in Chile. I can tell you it was a surprise to me to see something uh, emerge the way that it is where today you're even talking about a rewriting of the Constitution of Chile. Uh, where you would have looked at it uh, three months ago, two months ago, and said, what's wrong with Chile? And all of a sudden, there's uh, an, emergency, uh, uh, an emergence of, of, uh, uh, of instability there. 
the return of the Peronists in Argentina. And again, it, it may work out okay, but there is no long-term commitment to restoration under the Macri administration and the patience thereof to kind of pay the, 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 the price and the discipline necessary to get an economy back into, into good working order uh, because this, this rise of populism kind of takes it back and gives the power, quote-unquote, to the people. And I, and I think it's uh, uh, not, again, I'm not doing a value judgment on it. It's a recognition, though, it has profound impact on policies and the response by, uh, by governments to the challenges that we face in the, in the security arena. So what do I tell my grandchildren? Uh, because that's a, that's a pretty grim-looking world, right? Well, um, there's three or four areas where I think, and it really comes down to the questions you may have as a follow-up, Jeff, or from, from the audience here. Um, I think cooperation among peace-loving, value-sharing countries like ourselves uh, is is absolutely critical, and those need to those those ties need to be deepened. And this is what this is about. It can be in the area of, as uh, Dr. Gupta already mentioned, in areas of technology cooperation and other things. I would argue it also needs to be in intelligence sharing. It has to be in the security arena, where uh, we we face common threats. Where uh, that needs to be deepened. And it has to be done with eyes wide open to. Uh, real and profound counterintelligence threats that are associated with that uh, from inside and from without, but certainly that is uh, one of the things that I, I think needs to be deepened. Uh, it's already been mentioned up here in the area of technology. Uh, in a cyber-dominated world that we live in, and I'm looking at some of the young people, and that's anybody 60 and younger here, so that's <laughs> my age, so I'm not making a value judgment on your age, but the young people here, you're, living, you're going to live in ones and zeros for um, as far as uh, certainly we can look out into the future, uh, only becoming more complex with artificial intelligence, machine learning, Internet of Things, on and on and on in terms of uh, both the emerging threat that comes from that as well as opportunities to, to cooperate. And uh, let me talk about one domain that is very keenly on my mind where I think cooperation by the three countries represented on this panel uh, could be deepened, and that's in space. And, um, and I'm not referring to the parking lot. I'm talking about space and the domain as an area where um, I think our, our next major conflicts will be uh, certainly challenged by uh, the threats to uh, uh, the life as we know it in terms of uh, going dark on GPS and multiple other things that are very space-dependent in terms of our satellite systems in, in, in all orbits. And I think cooperation both in the commercial arena as well in defense, and of course that overlaps in the world where uh, a good percentage of our innovation is done in the commercial-slash-private sector over the public sector, which is in deep contrast to when I started my career in 1982, uh, where that, the, the codependency of private-public partnerships is, is absolutely necessary, but it's also absolutely necessary among countries that have shared interests and shared values about 
subjects like space. And uh, to, to me, that's absolutely uh, one of the domains that uh, I think a lot about and I think is, is uh, something on the forefront as to how we look at uh, the challenges that we face. And with that, I'll turn it back to you. And uh, you can say it was a grim picture, but I also think that there are many opportunities to do many things together. Absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, actually, to all, all the panelists for very substantive presentations. Um, before we move to Q&A, if we think of the India-Israel-US uh, trilateral as a triangle, I think the, you know, India and the US have, a, have developed a security partnership, have come a long way in a short period of time, and developed a rock-solid, uh, broad security partnership, as Dr. Gupta alluded to. Obviously, America's security partnership with Israel is, is, uh, is storied, is rock-solid, has it's been around a long time. Perhaps the weakest leg of this triangle has traditionally been the India uh, Israel relationship, although that's beginning to change, as Dr. Gupta mentioned. And it was sort of timely. Um, last night after our events, I was on Twitter, and I saw that um, in recent days there have been rocket attacks on Israel from Gaza. And perhaps unsurprisingly, um, you began to see hashtags trending in Israel. I stand with Israel, stop the rocket attacks. You know, there's nothing unusual about that. What was interesting was that in one other country in the world, those same hashtags started trending, and it was in India. In, India. in fact, in India, they were trending after they had stopped trending in Israel. <laughs> and so there, uh, there is, um, I would say, certainly common interests that have brought the two countries together, but also maybe a sort of in, intangible affinity there maybe from the, a product of the experience of having been under siege from Islamist terrorism for many years, of being bastions of stability in, in rough neighborhoods. Um, and so I, I thought uh, maybe I would just ask uh, Ambassador Gold and Dr. Gupta if you could talk a, a little bit about how this relationship has come from a place of relative estrangement for many years uh, to one uh, of 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 growing partnership, uh, what what has changed? It does seem that there's more political will now in both capitals uh, to move this forward. And uh, yeah, with that, I'd turn it over to you. I recall when I was ambassador of Israel to the United Nations, and um, we found India's voting in the General Assembly was beginning to change. I said, something's happening here. Um, I think, again, a lot of it goes back to the structure of the architecture of international security prior to 1991, where the Soviet Union figured so prominently. And that affected everything in our relations. Uh, but with the Soviet Union pulling back, Coming Russia, Russia seeking a new identity of cooperation and also a conflictual identity. Um, I think it became much easier for our two countries to work together openly. And I think that has a lot to do with the change. Now, there's still issues that are out there that'll have to be 
addressed, resolved. Um, I mentioned Iran. Iran figures extremely prominently. Um, the organizations in Gaza that are attacking Israel are supported by Iran. When I, um, I wrote a book that was very nasty on Saudi Arabia in uh, 2003. The publisher called it Hatred's Kingdom. At that time, the uh, budget of Hamas came roughly 50 to 70 percent from Saudi Arabia. Today, Saudi Arabia doesn't give uh, Hamas a nickel, nothing. But the support to Hamas comes from really two sources, primarily from Iran, but also from Qatar. So those are, that's a, a huge change. And um, it makes us see that the Iranian problem has uh, dimensions, multiple dimensions that affect our security directly. Uh, people living in uh, Ashkelon who see these rocket attacks coming right into their homes. Um, I think that some of the subjects that you raised or others have raised here like the problem of North Korea. North Korea interacts very closely with Iran. And so there may not be a security architecture yet for all of Asia, but there's a security architecture for the bad guys. And I think we have to be attentive to that. You know, Pakistan was always very far away from us. And, um, but yet here, what did I tell you? I said, Pakistani Shiites are now in Syria. What does that mean? So it means that I think we're going to have to put our heads together about how our backyards are affecting each other. I'll stop here. Thank you. Yeah. I think uh, the factors uh, mentioned by Ambassador Gold are very relevant, but I just want to add uh, one or two more to this. Uh, there has always been an admiration for Israel in India. Of course, there has been, you know, the, it's a complex thing, so there's this Palestinian cause also. We have a large Muslim population, so all that has been there. And it was the geopolitics which was keeping it, uh, you know, somewhere shackled. And when the Soviet Union disappeared and suddenly you had a totally new uh, environment and that created these uh, conditions. But so one, and then we have also had a very uh, decent, nice community of Jews in India for centuries. So they have also been a bridge between, I think, India and Israel. A lot of them have gone there. Some of them, in fact, we met yesterday also here. So they have been, although they have gone there, but they still sort of their links and ties with India. And the admiration for them in India, that continues. And so you feel as if you're one. So that's, I think, another factor. Then terrorism. 
terrorism and its various manifestations, Israel's support for India, and support not just in terms of, in a way of words, but actually practical support to encounter terrorism. And also we remember in uh, the very timely support, uh, very timely quick support that we got from Israel in 1909 uh, during the Kargil War and on other occasions. I think that has gone down very well with the, uh, the Indians. And of course, Israel's achievements it's in technology and the way they have you know, managed to fight. You know, in some way, people are uh, reminded that how they have fought their adversity, uh, adversity and dealt with it is something that is, I think, uh, somewhat common because we have also been a victim of uh, cross-border terrorism, etc. But I think Israelis were very clear where uh, in this whole, you know, this murky thing of terrorism, etc., the support was with India. And uh, that has uh, been appreciated. And as I was mentioning, once our embassies started opening and uh, the contacts deepened, then you suddenly found that uh, there are many other narratives uh, to be told. And uh, agriculture, for instance, is one. And I would say today, it's agriculture, which is really uh, water, agriculture, and that has led to many, and you know, the exchange of students, very high quality of education, cooperation in cybersecurity, innovation, and of course, uh, the defense cooperation. So over the years, these started growing and they started delivering. The potential is huge, may not be, you know, the entire potential has not been fulfilled. So overall, it has been uh, a gradual uh, improvement and a very positive elements have come in. To the extent that today, a large number of our chief ministers, the chief ministers are the people who are in charge of our states, the politically elected people, they have visited Israel and uh, competed with each other to get Israelis into uh, their, uh, you know, in the different states to uh, set up these uh, collaborations and cooperation. So I think uh, these are the uh, factors. And now, of course, uh, earlier, we tried to keep it at the functional level. So it took some time, but now it is a very intense political relationship. And you have seen the visuals of uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Prime Minister Modi. And the, what he mentioned about uh, the British uh, uh, Indian Army and the role it played in its, uh, the liberation of the Middle East, this is a story not known even in India that well. And I came to know of it only a few years ago, that too accidentally when I was talking to the Baha'i faith people, who one of their uh, uh, you know, religious leaders was at that time in Haifa, and he was liberated by the British and the Indian contingent of the British Army. And uh, so this was ha happened 100 years ago. Even I think Prime Minister Netanyahu also did not know at uh, that point of time, and they visited. So I think these now uh, factors are coming into uh, play. And uh, it's just uh, the beginning. So I suppose it's a very good uh, uh, future. And David, I noticed that in, in none of your four horsemen of the apocalypse was India or Israel part of the problem. It seems to me that, if anything, they're part of the solution. And uh, as we look ahead to an era of increasing competition with, with China and increasing focus on the Indo-Pacific, I assume it becomes even more and more important that we not only strengthen our existing partnerships in West Asia and the Middle East, um, but that we encourage stronger connections between them as we hopefully 
allow them to assume more of the burden in generating stability in the region. Is that right? Uh, that's absolutely correct. I, I see a, a role for, for both India and Israel as strategic and tactical partners. Um, as I look at fall, what fell under my purview, which was the defense intelligence aspects of the combatant commands, now the Indo-Pacific Command in Honolulu and, and the focus on the subcontinent uh, and its relationship as a command to Central Command that obviously has the purview of of uh, West, Af uh, West Asia and, uh, and or, as you call it, the Middle East, I think there's opportunities not only in the intelligence and security aspects of, of that relationship to deepen it and be part of the uh, common security uh, enabling picture, but it also ties to defense cooperation through exercises, through um, joint efforts, much as has been done already with Japan and is in, in the quadrilateral with, uh, with Australia as well. And I think those are, those are real opportunities for Israel to become further engaged vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the subcontinent. I would also say, and I underscore this, it's very important for each of our uh, countries to uh, really work with uh, our, our respective administrations to uh, ensure that what we're talking about today gets translated into action by the respective governments. And we all know what services we're talking about here without being explicit, but it is to drive them to actually get involved in trilateral intelligence cooperation. And those require trust-building measures. Uh, let, let's be very frank. Uh, you don't get it overnight. Uh, it can take years to develop, but there's no better time to start or to further that engagement than today because tomorrow is already one day later than what you could be doing today. Find uh, objectives, targets, as we call them, goals that are in common and go after them. And it may be in the counterterrorism arena. It may be further in the area of technology sharing, uh, both to protect as well as to uh, provide technology uh, uh, advantage to the respective countries as we face um, uh, a five, uh, fifth generation technology coming out of China that would bifurcate the Internet as we know it already. And uh, so, so challenges like that are well worth uh, having those discussions, discussions about space protection as well as potential for offensive capabilities should, should those be required. Yeah. Thank you. And I want to open the um, floor to the audience now for Q&A. And before that, um, just note that China did come up quite a bit in our discussions yesterday. Um, all three countries uh, share a similar challenge in, in the sense that we're all trying to grapple with how best to continue engaging with China in ways that are economically beneficial to both parties, to all parties, while mitigating security threats and concerns. And uh, for the United States, that's a multifaceted challenge. For all countries, it is. But India is now grappling with a very serious decision on its 5G network in Huawei. Uh, India, Israel has uh, contracts and agreements with the Chinese about 
managing infrastructure and ports. And so um, this is also, I think, an important common challenge among the three where better understanding, better communications among us can, can help us grapple with the challenge more effectively. So I think we have a first question here on the left, then we'll move up through. Thank you, everyone. I'm, my name is Jay Kansar. I'm with the India America Movement. Uh, what strategies do your governments, and that includes the, the United States, have to mitigate the challenges that are presented in the domestic politics of the United States right now, as well as in countries such as the UK, where there is a nexus between anti-Semitic, anti-Israel forces, as well as anti-Hindu and anti-India forces. We've seen this recently in the UK with these massive protests um, that have become somewhat violent uh, in response to the abrogation of Article 370, as well as the uh, anti-Semitic narratives that are finally being exposed in the, in the Labor Party. Um, and what strategies can we try to employ here in the United States to ensure that these forces don't take greater hold of, you know, uh, one side of the aisle or the other here? Here we go. Well, there are obviously two forces in this revival of anti-Semitism. One is um, from the hard right, uh, but the other is from the um, left-wing organizations. Uh, some of this was studied at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, and uh, we call it the Red-Green Alliance where um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, there were organizations on the hard left in Britain that needed to replace uh, the uh, kind of support, the kind of uh, uh, admiration that existed for the Soviet Union. And they looked to um, Islamist organizations. I didn't say Islamic. To Islamist organizations, and um, you know that's part of it, and that's a political calculus. If you have a um, an organization, let's say on the um, hard left, that used to uh, receive certain support, and now you have to have new bodies of people come in to give you their shoulder. Um, you look to the Islamist groups to replace the old pro-Soviet parts of your population. And that's what happened in Britain. I don't believe you could apply that to the United States. Um, but um, I think the main thing to keep in mind, rather than just explaining the origins of all of this, is um, we, first of all, have to keep our eyes very wide open. And we have to stand strongly against anti-Semitism. Not just against the Jewish people, it's against the common values we have about um, um, for all our societies. So um, I don't have a prescription of what we can do. It, it would obviously be very important for India to take a strong stand against this because India is not going to be accused of having the same kind of calculus that might exist in a district in the United States or in Manchester in Britain, but um, I think all three of us should stand firm against it. And the same would be true of uh, anti-Hindu 
sentiments or anti-Hindu action. It's a very important uh, question that you have raised. And uh, the first thing is that uh, one has to identify uh, who is behind uh, such uh, forces. See, Hinduism is a very broad religion. It's very tolerant, very accommodative, doesn't threaten anyone, has more or less universal values. People are generally go around their own business. They don't mess around. And yet, there's some people who are coming so I think identifying those people who are behind it and their political agendas and trying to get uh, a better understanding, that is uh, very important. And there, the think tanks and you know others who are following this can play a role. The second is the role of the governments. Now, the Indian government has very good relations uh, with the countries that you mentioned, the government. And it is very important that uh, we continue to discuss uh, this with the government. And I must say, and seek their uh, help. And I must say that uh, on this front, uh, uh, the agencies, the government agencies, the institutions, they're generally helpful. Uh, but uh, it is something that has to be done at a, a continuous level. And third is that uh, since these are in other countries and, and there are some limitations what government of India or Indians living in India can do it. So here, the organizations or the movements like yours, they can also uh, play a role. So, uh, but it's, uh, I think uh, what happens is, uh, is happening in the backdrop of uh, the geopolitical, regional and domestic changes. And a lot of it is to do with the domestic politics of these countries, because many of these people live there. But some of our uh, friends uh, do take advantage of uh, that and try to. So we have to be vigilant. And uh, we have been in this for a very uh, long time. And uh, uh, we have been dealing with this. Uh, and as I said, uh, uh, as the geopolitical environment changes, particularly on our Western side, I think uh, these challenges will also uh, enhance and one has to be vigilant. Thank you. And just, uh, I think Jay raised a very important question. And uh, there is a related phenomenon that I think is just worth observing. And that is the, in my opinion, the part of the strength of the U.S.-Israel and U.S.-India relationship has traditionally been its bipartisan nature. And for the first time uh, recently, certainly with India, you've begun to see a, a bit of a, a political fracturing on this question and some uh, sign of discontent, uh, some signals that the bipartisan nature of support for both relationships has has begun to crack, and part of that is a, is a product of these strong sentiments on the left toward India and Israel. Um, but it's a phenomenon that is, I think, absolutely critical to to watch and to the best of our ability manage because it is a strength of both partnerships when we can rely on consistency across governments, across party lines, um, it, it does not benefit either 
if it's seen as a Republican partnership or a Democratic partnership with another country. So um, it's a related phenomenon that I'm, I'm glad has at least been put on the table that all those that are advocates for these partnerships need to need to be aware of and sensitive to. Um, back here in the middle. So uh, excellent uh, points made by the panel panelists. I have one. Uh, I'm from. Uh, my name is Aditya Satsangi. I'm from a American Hindu super PAC, and also an author of Debunking Mythology. So one question for uh, Mr. Shed is: some of the things that you mentioned in your apocalyptic <laughs> description, and you mentioned space, and I totally agree with you. One of the things which I uh, you did not mention one point about the ideology, because there is an ideological echo, uh, apocalypse, something vi which needs to be taken into factor for the United States and for India and for Israel. So what is uh, that? If, if, if you touch on those points, uh, that would be really helpful. Maybe we could take uh, two or three in a row there and then answer. My question is related to what uh, Aditya says. My name is Krishna Gudipati. Uh, I work with uh, various Hindu organizations uh, and we're interested to see India use Israel relationship prosper. Um, so recently when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is killed, uh, so great job America. Um, but at the same time, uh, Pentagon spokesman said that uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is killed, but the ideology still remains. So it's as though, and this is coming from the Pentagon uh, spokesperson who has access to the intelligence, defense, billions of dollars of equipment. So are we fighting the wrong war? Considering that uh, Israel is 8 million around people, United States is about 330 million, and India 1.3 billion at least. And considering that since World War II, most of the problem in the world and wars has been in Israel has been involved and have created and Americans have been died for them. My question is that this uh, uh, alliance of Israel in the US and India, what role uh, is it that uh, Israel is just using US and India to be to die for them, for the uh, uh, problem they create in the world? I can go more deeper, but... I think that's deep enough. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure how many Indians have died at Israel's behest in recent decades, but uh, we did have a good question on um, the ideology of, of ISIS, perhaps uh, living beyond its leaders, the ideology of, of, of Islamist terrorism. Um, how do we grapple with this in the years ahead when 
killing the number one, the number two, the number three of these groups, it seems, uh, you know, we've been playing whack-a-mole for 15 years, for 20 years in some respects. How do you kill off an ideology or at least begin to mitigate the damage it can do? Um, it's obviously a, a very long trajectory because that uh, ties into the long war. But um, I think credit should go to the response on Wahhabism in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, the Crown Prince, uh, bin Salman, is uh, focused on that. And I think there, have been, uh, there has been a response that, well, never perfect, never conclusive, never fully comprehensive in its uh, impact is, is making a difference. And uh, I think that's very important. The, uh, the, the, the reference that Ambassador Gold referred to in terms of the assistance going to uh, Hamas in Gaza, um, uh, perhaps even into the Pidge, uh, whose leader met his demise uh, most recently, uh, is a, a great example in terms of uh, much improved behavior in terms of the finances coming out of, uh, out of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as simply an example. It's a long war by definition in that the ideological component of it continues to be something that we need to address as an international community. And it requires governments to respond in the whole of the, of the problem rather than the kinetic end of the spectrum or just the education end of the spectrum. There's everything in between. And how do you uh, deal with uh, individuals who are taken by that extreme uh, interpretation of, of Islam and apply it to uh, mounting a violent jihad? And so to that end, uh, I think that's where the cooperation and uh, the, the venues in which that is discussed is, is absolutely critical. And so I would, I would agree with that the fact that al-Baghdadi and the number two have been removed does not in and of itself uh, deal the, the kind of end state uh, demise of Daesh, ISIS, uh, the elements of it have been reconstituted in parts of Libya. Uh, you see their presence in the Sahel. Uh, and so you, 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 you want to make sure that you're taking an international comprehensive response to, to that. And so that would be my contribution, but obviously my colleagues here may, may add to that perspective. I have uh, two comments from our experience. One... When as Daesh declined uh, in uh, Syria, Iraq, it prospered in Egyptian Sinai. Mm -hmm. And one of the little-known stories, but you know what? The president of Egypt has spoken about it, so I feel free to speak about it. One of the little-known stories is that um, the revival of Daesh power in Sinai, which has, which has placed the Egyptians in a very difficult position. The Egyptian war effort against Daesh has not been so successful. 
has led to Israel helping Egypt fight Daesh. And that is something that is going on along our southern front today as we speak. Um, there was a second issue which this gentleman here in the center raised about, you said Indians dying for Israel? And Americans. Okay, that's a very cute <laughs> comment. But it is... Look, you, you can take that. That is, from my perspective, that is a, a false accusation which only... Um, springs hatred towards Jews in Israel, and therefore I reject it totally. Now let me tell you something. As somebody who negotiated agreements in the name of the State of Israel, we repeatedly told our American friends that Israel will defend itself by itself. Do you see proposals to put in the Jordan Valley the 82nd Airborne? No. Do you see requests of us to uh, Prime Minister Modi to put uh, Indian forces on the area of the Golan Heights, no way. So it's a scenario that attracts a lot of anti-Semites. It has absolutely nothing to do with the security doctrine of the State of Israel. End of point. Yeah. Sir, this, this, is not, this is not an interactive dialogue. You've had an opportunity to ask a question. It's over. Thank you. We have done here. Thank you for coming. Uh, I have, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a uh, uh, member of uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, two questions. Number one, uh, doctor, can you talk about India-China relations? I'm referring to uh, Belting Road. That's number one. Uh, number two, David, uh, thank you for mentioning North Korea. Uh, I, I think I always thought the action plan should be to get other countries involved. Um, for example, Germany, France, Britain, they're beginning to voice their oppositions for North Korea's nuclear weapon testing and so forth, not leaving U.S. alone, you know, with, with North Korea. So I think that's, that's a pretty good sign right now. But the problem is, in my opinion, is that the uh, sanctions are very effective only for a few years. They will find a way to cheat, and they will do that. And I bet you they are doing it, and that's why that makes them able to, to have the test. So that's, that's the problem. I, I need your opinion on that. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we take, uh, I think we had two more. Do we want to group a few together? One and two. Yeah. Hello, thank you all for coming today. My name is Justin. I'm an intern here at Heritage. So my question is regarding Professor Shedd's point about uh, one of the horsemen being um, the rise in populism. So we are definitely seeing the effects on, in terms of, um, the views on Middle East from uh, in both here domestically in the U.S. 
and also like Argentina, um, the possibility of the Kirshner uh, removing Hamas as a um, threat uh, or as a um, listing as a terrorist organization threat. Um, so how have we seen any of this sort of populism in Israel and India and how has it manifested itself in those nations? Thank you. Matthias Pertula with the International Christian Concern. Um, my question is for Mr. David Shade, kind of on the lines what uh, the intern asked was, in terms of the rise in populism, a lot of times this brings extremist rhetoric that can be acted upon. How do you suppose the three countries can work together to curb extremist rhetoric, to counter this, uh, both on the international stage and the domestic stage as well? Right. I will start with the North Korea uh, mention in terms of the uh, the support towards sanctions. I would argue that uh, the, the sanctions that are now placed on Kim Jong-un and his cohort um, are effective and only as effective if you keep them on uh, as in perpetuity until behavior changes. Uh, but let me give you an example taken out of uh, Juan Zarate's Treasury War, Treasury's War, a great book, by the way, that references uh, going after uh, Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il's um, finances in Banco Delta Asia and Macau. And the freezing of those accounts had the net effect of bringing back Kim Jong-il to the negotiating table in the five-party talks at, at the time. We're talking 2004, 2005. And I was a part of that in terms of the policy objectives that, that we had there. The one experience uh, or, or thematic experience that I've had is that despots hate having their money taken from them. That's what they live off of, and that's what they keep their cohort in power. And if I spent the day on Venezuela yesterday, and if you can go after Maduro and his cohort around him, his, his uh, narco-klepto-kleptocracy uh, of, of Venezuela today, um, over time, unfortunately, there's great suffering in between because they're not fast, and it's a blunt instrument by way of, of that. And so keeping the pressure on with the sanctions in North Korea, I think, is, is at the key of it. Um, I guess in response to the rise of uh, populism, the rhetoric, and, and what we can do about it, comes back a little bit to your question, Jay, uh, and I was thinking about it, and as Jeff was, was uh, responding from the U.S. standpoint, um, what I'm deeply concerned about where the United States is today is the uh, the, the the, the inability to have uh, public discord that meets in the center, right? And you see it most prevalently, perhaps, on some college campuses, some university and college campuses, but it's symptomatic of where we've gone in terms of the inability to, to, to meet somewhere in the middle, uh, but rather go, and, and I think the polarization that we're seeing is manifested in our political system as well as in, in the, uh, uh, the non-public square. 
so to speak, and, and the closing down of that. And the net impact of that is then to deepen harbored uh, prejudicial views of issues, right? You, you go and what do you do? You go and get reaffirmed by the very people that you hang around with. You know, as my mother used to say, you're known by the friends you keep. Well, if, you, if that's all you hear, you never are able to come to, to the... And I, I'm deeply worried of societally where the United States is, on whether it's Christian values or religious freedoms or whatever the area that, that you address. Uh, and so I, I would say uh, having the, the, the powers that be talk about Restoring that is very important. Having groups like yourself where even where there's differences of opinion, you find common ground in which to meet somewhere in a very broad middle, uh, right? But um, I'm, I'm afraid we're in, in sort of very dire straits when it comes to the public discourse as it relates to that. Uh, thank you for those Questions. I think uh, they are very important questions and thought-provoking as well. Let me just uh, take uh, two or three of them. Uh, this question of uh, how to uh, fight the extremist uh, ideologies. Now, one response, of course, is that uh, you do a kinetic response and you have to do what you have to do intelligence, counterterrorism, all the operations. But that is, as the, it was inherent in that question, is not enough. You have to do something more than that. Because if you're talking about ideologies, then I think the answer has to be ideologies. Now, there is one problem about ideologies. The problem about ideologies is that there is very little flexibility because if you're an ideologically inclined, which means you adhere to a set of assumptions, beliefs, etc., and that leaves very little scope to change your assumptions because then you change your ideology. On the other hand, if you look at the Indian tradition, the emphasis has been on samvad. Samvad means dialogue, means honest dialogue where the assumptions in different ideologies are put before you for examination, a critical examination in an open mind. And this samvad has taken place in India, in Hinduism, from the time of Shankaracharya, even before, when Buddhism split from uh, uh, Hinduism, and we are still having uh, Hindu-Buddhist samvad. For instance, the VIF does a Hindu-Buddhist samvad uh, regularly, and the last time we did was in uh, Ulaanbaatar. So this question has been exercising not just the uh, state actors, but ordinary people. So I think we should listen to what the ordinary people are saying. So this, we have to get together this moderate voices, well-reasoned, moderate voices, which are open to listening and open to change. So I think being strictly ideological becomes a big problem, because then your ideology versus mine, who is right, who is wrong, we cannot. But I think having a good dialogue uh, amongst different persuasions, and this is not something which can be time-bound. This is something that we talk about it in forums like this, 
maybe even uh, coffee houses, tea shops, and other places. So we must bring these moderate uh, people together because overwhelmingly people are moderate. It is some people, fringe elements, extremist elements on the fringes, which hijack the whole agenda. And we must be careful about it. So I think that's the way probably to look at it. And India and the Hinduism, I think, are very good uh, uh, examples. Now, in India, for instance, although we can uh, uh, look at, uh, we can say that if you look at uh, how many Indians fought in uh, Iraq and Syria, we have a, a population, a Muslim population of almost 170, 180 million, which is probably the second or third largest uh, in the world. And yet the number of people who directly were implicated are less than 20 perhaps. And the people who in some way were linked were probably about 100 something. And most of them uh, probably were living abroad, not in India. So this question keeps coming to us from various uh, angles, you know, from various people ask us, how did you manage it? Because people were not, in mind they are not uh, extremist in their uh, thinking. in their, And that is because the way people have coexisted, lived and evolved over centuries, I mean, they must have fought with each other, but they also sat with each other. They were, it's not, it was not a question of integration or assimilation. It was just all growing together, all of us. And it's not one. I mean, if you look at it, a, it's a cosmos, basically, of ideologies and so on. But we have lived together. And this has happened because coexistence. I mean, and no, you know, Hinduism is a dominant religion, but it has never gone and imposed itself on anyone. So I think there are some lessons, and perhaps social scientists and others who are better informed than me can probably uh, comment on this. But yes, I think uh, dealing with the extremist ideologies is a, a very big uh, challenge. And maybe some of it we'll talk in the afternoon when we are having this uh, session on uh, this uh, theme of uh, uh, what we call Vasudev Kutumbukam, which says the world is a family. Now, this is more than 2,500 years old dictum and which Prime Minister Modi in his numerous speeches has talked about it. And it is not a, a rhetorical uh, question. It's something that comes very naturally. That is one. Then you talked about, uh, somebody talked about populism. I think populism is a part of politics. I mean, politics is populism, populism, politics. You really can't separate it. But then you have to rely and believe, believe that in a true democracy, people will see through. And then over several iterations, I think the populist question is sorted out. There is a lot of populism in the political rhetoric in our state elections, in our local elections, etc. But it is the same people who very quickly change the governments in uh, no time. So I think to deal with populism, ultimately you have to look at uh, what does it deliver. Uh, yes, you know, people can get votes and seek for votes, and sometimes they get it also in name of uh, populist ideologies and so on. But it is seen through. Ultimately, it is what is the delivery on the ground. So democracy is a very good way of uh, you know dealing with uh, populist uh, uh, rhetorics. Uh, I think third question was about a question about uh, uh, India-China relations and uh, the BRI. Now, I did mention briefly uh, in my opening remarks that Belt and Road Initiative is, uh, as somebody said, I think one of my panelists, co-panelists said that 
it's really the Chinese globalization. I think you, you mentioned that. It has uh, geopolitical consequences. As far as India is concerned, India did not attend two of the signature conferences uh, which China uh, held uh, on BRI because we have some serious uh, issues with the BRI, uh, particularly uh, connected with the China-Pakistan uh, economic corridor, which is passing through the state of Jammu and Kashmir, which India claims sovereignty over since 1947. So we could not really be a part of it. But that part, I think one has to look at what this BRI is and how it is evolving. So there are many questions that are being asked, not just in India, but even in those countries where BRI is very strong, including in Pakistan. So a BRI is an evolving story, and I think it's, uh, of course, a signature uh, <coughs> project of uh, President Xi. But there are many other aspects of it, with people in Myanmar, in Malaysia, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, and many other countries in Africa. They're beginning to ask what is the true meaning of BRI? Because many of these countries are getting uh, uh, indebted. And that indebtedness is not really the best way to do it, uh, go about this BRI. And that's why countries like this uh, Japan, India, USA, and others, we have come out with these proposals about how to fund these projects. There should be certain norms, uh, which should be internationally recognized norms. And we should be open, there should be openness and uh, transparency in these norms of funding these projects so that people don't get into the uh, traps. And there should be certain assurances about uh, the quality. So quality infrastructure uh, projects, I think all uh, of us, there's Japan, Australia, India, US have talked about this. And probably that is a way to uh, go about uh, dealing with. The needs for building infrastructure, connectivity, et cetera, are very real. And in fact, we were discussing it uh, this morning with my colleagues here. One way I think the US became a superpower, an acceptable superpower, was because of its Marshall Plan. And it brought together, uh, it, it was very generous at that point of time. Of course, it was a victor, and there must have been uh, political motives behind it. But nevertheless, it led to the rebuilding of uh, Europe. And China probably has learned from there, and they have come up with some kind of a BRI, though it's not exactly the Marshall Plan. But now I think that it's time for countries like Japan, India, Australia, and others to come together and come up to how to fulfill these genuine needs of uh, the need for uh, economic development and so on. You see, in this new multipolar world that is coming, we are finding that the old multi, uh, multi, uh, the multilateral institutions, uh, their uh, deficiencies are being exposed. But that doesn't mean the need for uh, international cooperation has gone away. So we must find a way of uh, dealing with this. And that's what is being done in Quad or our dialogue at Quad Plus, of the think tank dialogue that we have. So this is an urgent need that a BRI, yes, you know, it looks very attractive. But if it has certain deficiencies, how to overcome those deficiencies and come up with this. So India has done uh, in its own uh, uh, way, uh, are depending upon, I mean, based on our resources, the huge amount of connectivity projects that India is doing, uh, whether it's in Africa or in South Africa uh, and other places. Uh, but here, I think uh, uh, the needs are so huge that uh, one country alone cannot do it. So that's why some kind of a international cooperation is uh, uh, required. 
I think I'll stop here. These are the three questions I wanted to address. Yeah, and I, actually, that's a good time because I think we've we've hit our our time limit now. And frankly, we've covered a lot of ground. We've been on quite the intellectual journey: many highs, the occasional low, and uh, an educational exercise nonetheless. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming out today for asking such great questions, and I want to ask you to join me in a round of applause for our panelists. Um, great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One nice meeting you. Likewise. Thank you so much.